This is Kyle Homewood, Director of Community Engagement and Special Programs at Arizona Opera. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this episode of the Arizona Opera Podcast. Today, we're talking about the final opera on our 1819 season, Mozart's hit opera, The Marriage of Figaro. To give us some background on this world-famous composer, I called the biggest Mozart fan I know. Hello there, I'm Naomi Baratera, and I am a lecturer and a podcast host and a musicologist who works a lot with opera. It's an art form that I really love, and I spend a lot of time with it, so I'm excited to be here. In addition to being one of the best classical music composers of all time, many of us know Mozart as a child prodigy. So I asked Naomi to start at the beginning to tell us a little bit more about how this amazing composer rose to fame. For sure. So his father, Leopold Mozart, was actually a violin teacher and a professional violinist. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book, which was essentially like a how-to guide for playing the violin. And Leopold recognized fairly early on that Mozart had incredible musical talent. Mozart's older sister was also a musician, and Leopold kind of trained the both of them side by side. She was a I believe she was an an amazing pianist or Mm. keyboard player. So the piano as we know it today, the concert piano didn't exist quite in the same format. It's kind of like an early early version of the piano, the clavier and the harpsichord. Um, So she was a brilliant keyboard player. And he recognized pretty early on Mozart was maybe six years old uh, when he made his first public performance or public appearance and he had actually been taking lessons before that also composing before that he was around five years old when he first started composing and so it's something that leopold recognized early on in his both of his children and then the family actually went on several very robust european tours where they performed for aristocracy for nobility for different courts they would go and entertain royalty all over europe they went everywhere they went all the way up to northern parts of germany they went Mm -hmm. over towards england they went all through france they went into italy and so they one of their tours was multiple years long and they went on many of them and essentially leopold was showing his children off as performers all around Europe, partially to make money for the family because they would be paid for performing engagements. Mm -hmm. But then as uh, Wolfgang, who Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is how we know him today, uh, we believe that he himself referred to his own name as Wolfgang Amade Mozart. And although his baptismal name is even longer, so there's (laughs) many derivations. Uh, But Wolfgang actually... As he got older, partly why Leopold was continuing to do the kind of performance tour with Wolfgang was for him to get a good job somewhere, mm-hmm. right? Hoping that all of these kind of freelance performing gigs would eventually pay off with getting him a really prestigious, steady job at a court or at a palace or something like that. Uh-huh. And so he worked very hard to try and get his son connected with as many important people around Europe as he could with the hopes that it would lead to a a wonderful career for his son. And so he not only composed Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, but he also performed. He was a keyboard player himself. We know he played the violin. And so he kind of was a a multiple threat musician. So Wow. As a five or six year old. It's 
Right. That's really... <laughs> Beginning from the ages of five <laughs> or six and uh, going on from there. That's amazing. And from what we know, Leopold Mozart was entirely responsible for the education of his children. Mm-hmm. And he didn't just have them study music. He had them study all kinds of things, especially as they were on the road, literature and mathematics, sciences, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But he really dedicated a lot of time to their musical tutelage. Excellent. Well, you made mention of the fact that Mozart's father, a big part of this tour was trying to establish connections for him and, and get him to the next point in a in a career. Was mm-hmm. there a, a first big break for Mozart then after that point, either as a, a performer or a composer? What is there a point that we associate with being kind of the first launching point of his compositional career? There were a couple of important points where he got very strong recognition for his work. Certainly in opera, a very important moment for him was the composition of Idomeneo, which Mm. is one of his earlier operas, which I believe made its premiere in Munich and got quite a wide recognition uh, as a, a notable first, or it wasn't his first opera ever, but it was a notable early effort of this young composer mm-hmm. in the operatic genre. And in terms of like a really big break in opera composing actually came shortly after he moved to Vienna. He got a commission from what was at the time the National Theater, where Emperor Joseph II was really trying to encourage the creation of operas with German text because Mm. up until that point most of the time in that area they were importing Italian operas with Italian text because the Italians were kind of the the founders of opera and were the prevailing composers in the genre the most popular composers Mm. and so most of the operas that were being performed in Vienna were imported from Italy and Joseph II really wanted to sort of prove that German-speaking opera could also be wonderful as well. And so he single-handedly funded this effort to promote operas with German texts. Mm -hmm. And Mozart got a commission to write an opera for the National Theater based on a German text. And that is what gave us, uh, in English, the abduction from the Seraglio, or in German, die Entführung aus dem Seral. And so... That particular opera really put him on the map as a composer that really had something special going for him in composing opera. But interestingly, it didn't lead to an immediate next commission in opera. It would actually be a couple of years before he got to write opera again. And the next opera that he got to write was our opera for today, La Nozze di Figaro. So abduction from the seraglio was a very important moment in launching his fame and actually in some of his obituaries that were written at the time after he died the writers singled out that particular opera as kind of the moment that he started catapulting to stardom so to speak yeah definitely so you've given us a wonderful segue into talking about our opera of the hour le nozze di figaro Mm -hmm. or the marriage of figaro So can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances? You said this came after the abduction from the Sorelio. What led to the creation of of this opera and, and who were the big parties involved? Well, as I said, he really wanted to write opera. And Mozart, we know, really longed to write opera. He loved the process of writing opera, of composing music for specific singers that he had in mind. He has this great quote in a letter where he describes that an aria should fit a singer like a glove where it's tailor-made to 
to their voice like a glove is tailor-made to a person's hand. Mm. And so he was looking for opportunities to get an opera commission. And we also have to admit that this is not purely an artistic pursuit. Opera is paid much better than piano concertos or symphonies or smaller commissions because they were larger works. And so getting an opera commission was also a better paying gig than teaching students or getting a smaller ensemble commission, that kind of thing. That's really interesting. Yes, you could often make, you know, what you would make um, in a yearly salary or kind of a yearly total from smaller symphony or piano concerto or sonata commissions, ensemble music commissions, you could probably make at least half a year's salary composing an opera if you got a good contract. And so... And it was a significant commitment to an artistic project. There's lots of collaborators involved. And, you know, it's not a it's not something that you can whip off in a few days, although there's certainly stories of <laughs> composers doing that. <laughs> right. So it was generally very well paying, in addition to being artistically very satisfying for a composer, especially a composer like Mozart, who really enjoyed that process. So he wrote Abduction from the Seraglio. It was very well received. But he had a hard time getting another commission. And around the time that he composed Abduction from the Seraglio, a particular person moved to Vienna that would become very important. And that person was Lorenzo da Ponte. Mm -hmm. And Lorenzo da Ponte essentially got a letter of recommendation from a friend of his who happened to know Antonio Salieri. And Salieri was the court composer at the time. Mm -hmm. He had the position that Mozart wanted or the kind of prestigious employment that Mozart, for lack of a better word, lusted after, (laughs) right? And so uh, Da Ponte had this letter of introduction from a friend to get him in the good graces of Salieri. And essentially, Salieri got Lorenzo da Ponte a job working as a court poet. And so at this time period, operas, the text of an opera was almost always in poetry. Mm -hmm. It was not conversational. It was not like a theater piece that got just directly lifted and and translated into an opera, it the story would become condensed and rearranged and rewritten within poetic structures. And Lorenzo de Ponte was a brilliant writer. And so he was very, very good at writing libretti where the text itself was very artistic poetry, very witty, very layered with meaning, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so... Mozart had seen works that de Ponte had worked on with Salieri and with some of the other composers active in Vienna at the time, and he really wanted to collaborate with de Ponte. And the story goes that he actually asked de Ponte many times to work on an opera with him, and de Ponte kept saying that he was too busy or he had other commissions that were more interesting or more alluring or would have paid better. He basically had a bunch of excuses why he wasn't going to collaborate with Mozart. Mm -hmm. And then Mozart went looking for a work that would, um, source material that would translate well into an opera. And he came across the trilogy of plays by Pierre Beaumarchais. And Mm -hmm. so the trilogy is... Uh, The Barber of Seville was the first play, The Marriage of Figaro was the second play, and The Guilty Mother was the third play in the trilogy. And another composer by the name of Paisiello 
had written an opera on the Barber of Seville that had done really well a few years earlier. The public really liked Mm -hmm. it. And so this sort of gave Mozart the idea that maybe he could write the opera on the second play in the trilogy. And maybe that would interest De Ponte enough to get him to commit to being the librettist for the project. And part of why this particular play would have been very interesting is that it was actually very controversial at the time. Mm -hmm. It was a play that was so popular that it actually got banned in France because the play itself deals a lot with class relations and Mm -hmm. showing how kind of anybody of any social of any social status can have a strong moral fiber they can do the right thing they can outwit somebody of a higher social class this kind of thing and it also in a way showed you how sometimes the nobility and the aristocracy can be horrible human beings as well Mm -hmm. just like your average person and this of course was a message that the aristocracy did not want to be broadcast to the, the mass populace. Mm-hmm. And in France, there was already a lot of social unrest related to the spending of the, the crown. And it so happened that Marie Antoinette was queen at the time. And she was the sister of Emperor Joseph II. And so she was afraid of the popularity of this particular play. She had expressed these fears to her brother. Her brother had banned the the theatrical version of the play from being performed uh, earlier uh, before Mozart had this idea. And so in order to turn this into an opera, they would have had to convince the emperor to do this. But it was one of those works that was already so popular with the the people mm-hmm. and the Viennese public, almost like success from how scandalous it was, right. that they would have been guaranteed to have an interested public at the very least. The public would be curious to see what the opera would be like. And so this, I think, really tweaked De Ponte's interest in the kind of the challenge of turning this very politically controversial play into an opera that the emperor would allow to be performed and in a way that he and Mozart could get away with having performed on an opera stage. Wow. And so in De Ponte's memoirs, which are not super reliable, (laughs) but uh, in his memoirs, he said that he and Mozart had to get special permission from the emperor to make this work, Mm -hmm. to get to be allowed to perform it. And from what we know, the opera was fairly successful Um, It was well-liked from the moment it premiered. It didn't have a long run when it first premiered in Vienna. I think it only had six performances, Mm -hmm. but it was generally well-received. And then it went on to being performed in Prague, and it was extremely well-received in Prague, so much so that the Prague theater commissioned another opera from Mozart, which is how Don Giovanni came about, which is also a collaboration between Mozart and De Ponte. Mm -hmm. And then it went back to Vienna and it had an even longer run with, you know, 20 some odd performances in its second Vienna run. And so by all accounts, it was a success from the very beginning and well-liked by audiences. Wow, it's definitely an interesting choice given all of the the scandal that, that surrounded that particular story. It's also an interesting choice because we have such a large cast of characters and a plot that 
twists and moves and turns with plenty of comedic timing. Part of the reason why there's so many characters in this opera and so many complex plot threads is because it's based on the tradition of Commedia dell'arte, which was kind of the stock character tradition in Italian theatrical works. So if you think about like the military officer, the servant, the maid, the meddling mother-in-law, um, that the 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 sad clown, that kind of thing. There was this tradition of stock characters that informed a lot of comedic timing and comedic scenarios in Italian theater. And so you see this particular structure being pulled into this work, both in Beaumarchais' play and then in De Ponte's writing. But really what De Ponte and Mozart are credited for is taking these characters that could have been very one-dimensional and stereotypical and making them three-dimensional real people that are very relatable to the audience. Um, but that's partially where this massive cast of characters comes from is drawing in the stere the stock character frameworks from Commedia dell'arte. We could likely do a full hour-long podcast just talking about the plot of The Marriage of Figaro, but for the sake of time, I'm going to give it to you all in a nutshell. Essentially, we have Figaro and Susanna, who are in service to the Count and Countess Almaviva, and are also engaged to be married. Now, the Count has had his eye on Susanna for quite a while, and is interested in having physical relations with her prior to Figaro having the chance to do so after they get married. Naturally, this is upsetting to both Figaro, Susanna, and the Countess, so the three of them get together to plot a way to catch the Count in his cheating ways and embarrass him in front of the household. They loop in the young pageboy Carabino, who is a constant source of frustration for the Count, to say the least. We're also introduced to uh, several other characters, including Marcellina, who has a contract with Figaro after she loaned him some money that says either he needs to repay her or marry her. And this is irregardless of the fact that she's old enough to be his mother. It turns out that she actually is his mother, and he was stolen away at birth, and they didn't know until this point in time. It also turns out that one of our other smaller characters, Dr. Bartolo, is Figaro's father. So naturally, both he and Marcellina decide it's appropriate for them to get married. Now we have a double wedding, Figaro Susana, Marcellina, and Dr. Bartolo. Following the wedding, the Countess and Susanna decide to switch clothes so they can catch the Count lusting after Susanna. Late at night and in the darkness of the garden, the Count falls for it and has a rendezvous with whom he thinks is Susanna, but is actually the Countess. Immediately after, he sees a person who he thinks is the Countess canoodling with Figaro. He's outraged and he draws everyone's attention, and of course he's invited everyone to his own shame. When it's pointed out that he, in fact, was attempting to cheat on his wife, all he can do is beg for forgiveness. This being the comedic opera that it is, forgiveness is granted, and all is well. With the comedic timing and the twists and turns that are involved in this plot, it's extremely important to have magnificent singing actors portraying these roles. Sure. Uh, I'm Christopher Cano, the head of music and the director of the Marianne Roos Pullen Arizona Opera Studio. 
I asked Christopher Cano to talk a little bit more about the demands on a singer to bring this opera to life and to tell us more about the amazing singers that will be performing it on the Arizona Opera stage. You know, it's a comedy, and yet the other day, uh, Tara Faircloth, our director, was talking about uh, the human element um, and the issues that are, are covered within this comedy that are very real and actually quite profound. You know, I think that's one of the things that makes the work so incredibly fantastic is that he was able to address these things, um, social issues, uh, you know, class issues and um, infidelity and all of these things, um, and to write the most joyous, rambunctious at times, um, humorous, tongue-in-cheek, and in, and then in some of the most tender moments, you know, for the Countess, especially in, in both of her arias, there are moments of profound uh, feelings and, and sentiments that really sort of, when they're executed uh, by a, an incredible soprano or an, an incredible actress, uh, you know, they, they really do sort of tug at the heartstrings. So it's it, it's been referred to as being the perfect opera i think sure um historically because well for so many reasons i mean but i think that's one of the the main things is that the music itself you know sort of carries the show no matter what is happening on stage in a way um oh, some people would probably um, not agree with me on that <laughs> sentiment but that's okay that's you know that's that's how i I've experienced it. Um, I've seen it so many times and uh, in a lot of great productions and in a lot of not so great productions, but it never really matters to me because the score is just so incredibly marvelous Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, you walk out having experienced something fantastic. Yeah. It's amazing in this opera, how it's the, the plot really is all over the place and it's, it's truly comedic. Yet, as you said, we have these beautiful melodies, uh, mm-hmm. And these beautiful sections of the music that that come through, it's an incredibly lush yeah. score. Yeah. Um, so it's certainly nice for audiences to have that those two things wrapped together. Uh, what about the individual voices? You you mentioned a little bit about the countess. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about our our main characters and the voices that are are required for them? So we're we're talking about Figaro, Susanna, mm-hmm. the count, the countess, and perhaps Carabino sure. uh, as our central characters. Sure. Uh, we have theaters here in 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 Arizona, in mm-hmm. Tucson and in Phoenix. Uh, I believe in Phoenix it seats just over twenty seven hundred. Yeah. Um, and in Tucson we're somewhere at I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say it's somewhere between twenty three hundred and twenty five hundred, something like right. that. Right. Pretty big halls. Um, they're very big halls. So I wanted as as for example for the role of the countess, I really wanted a a countess who had a beautiful. Um, full lyric quality in her sound that could, you know, really touch the hearts of the people who are in attendance. And uh, we were very, very lucky in that we were able to secure Katie Van Coten, who's Mm -hmm. a wonderful singer. I'm a a longtime fan of hers. I I just adore how she sings and and think she's such an impeccable artist. And to see her uh, in the rehearsal process has been... um, tremendously rewarding because she brings this vulnerability and yet this 
real the, the voice just saturates every line so beautifully and it's going to fill the hall in such a way that i think uh nobody can n- nobody's going to walk out um unsatisfied yeah and then for the uh the role of the count we have zachary nelson who's uh got a beautiful uh robust uh bristly uh type of of baritone right. and um and what amazes me about Zachary is this was well both the roles of the countess and the count we actually uh single cast mm-hmm. for most of our productions we we double cast leading roles but for these two leading roles we 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 went ahead and single cast them with two singers who we knew had um enough uh, stamina and and strength to really sort of get through five performances. Right. Well, um, and, and three that are and back three to back that to are back. back to back. Correct. Yeah. And Zachary has has really in the in again in the rehearsal room has um, this is when you know you're dealing with a really fine singer mm-hmm. uh, to watch him pace himself and to practice that that thing of well how much do i have to give here and to see him marry that with how he's going to portray this character has really been really fascinating um so i I would imagine so we're really we're really lucky to have him as well so what about uh figaro and susanna uh these are double cast of course Mm -hmm. uh we have in the role of figaro we have andre corville who's a wonderful young bass baritone who's uh, having a, a pretty wonderful career right now mm-hmm. and one of our Marion Reese Pullen Arizona Opera Studio artists uh, Brandon Morales is the the second cast Figaro and Brandon to me um, sort of embodies Figaro just naturally uh, he's just so uh, full of energy and silliness as a person but in right. a great way I, I he's just such a joy to work with and to watch in this process because uh he brings so much of himself into this character and it's it's a lot of fun to watch. Uh for the role of Susanna, we have two remarkable sopranos, uh both of whom I've had the wonderful privilege of working with. Uh Katie Jordan, who is also our second cast Susanna is is a uh studio artist from Arizona Opera as well. Katie uh there was no doubt in my mind that that we needed to give Katie this opportunity. Uh she is just such a a joy to work with and and swallows every assignment whole. I mean, mm-hmm. she really just sort of comes at everything from a place of of hard work and dedication. Uh, she's charming, she's sassy, uh, she's beautiful to watch, and uh, sings beautifully. So this has been really great for her. And then um, our first cast, Susanna, is someone who is very special to me, and that's uh, soprano Janine DeBeek. Mm-hmm. And I've known Janine for many years. She was one of my uh, young singers that I coached and mentored at Manhattan School of Music. Mm-hmm. Um, she's doing her first Susanna with us here at Arizona Opera, which I'm thrilled with. She goes on to do it uh, this season at San Francisco Opera as well. Wow! In her debut there, so we're very, we're very, we were very lucky to secure her for this. And uh, and of course, for personal reasons, I'm very excited to have her um, show her stuff here for our audience as well. Um, I yeah. think the audience is going to uh, go crazy when they see both of these young women uh, for very different reasons. They both bring very different characteristics to their portrayals. And inevitably, I always get asked, which night should I come? I always, <laughs> you know, with Traviata, I, I, I said, you have to come to both because um, our two Violettas were completely different. And it's the same thing here. The two Susannas right. are completely different. 
and they're both very special in very different ways. And so, um, but I think the audience is in for a real treat with, with, with both casts. Yeah, I, I love hearing the way that, that you describe having two casts of singers that are performing so well, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, two fine wines, you know, yeah. it, they're yeah. different, but both fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so certainly something worth enjoying each, yeah. each in their own right. Yeah. Well, oddly enough, one of my favorite roles in this opera uh-huh. uh, is actually Carabino. Oh, really? <laughs> I just, I get such a yeah. kick out of this yeah. role, um, and especially when it's interpreted well. To mm-hmm. me, it's it's hilarious. Of course, right. this is a pants role. We have a right. mezzo that's playing uh, a teenage boy or a young man uh, that is in the middle of some of the most comic parts right. of this opera. So would you comment a little bit on that role and also sure. our, our wonderful interpreter of Carabino? Sure. Well, the role of Carabino is that of a young... Um, horny teenager uh, <laughs> who's coming into their own. <laughs> right. It's about the only <laughs> and, way you can put uh, it. It's the only way you can put it. You know, <laughs> uh, it is what it is. And, you know, like a lot of uh, young teenage boys, uh, they're, you know, trying to figure out who they are and their hormones are raging and they fall in love with every beautiful thing that um, comes their way. And so it really is remarkable how in this beautiful score Mozart is able to portray these these things <laughs> um so so vividly in the music uh-huh. and when we were uh casting this show it was right around the time that I was also going through hundreds and hundreds of video submissions for our studio program. Mm -hmm. And I came across this application of a young lady. Her name is uh, Catherine Beck Mm -hmm. or Katie Beck. Right. Um, She was a young artist at Opera Colorado, a a graduate of um, USC with the great, um, she studied with the great Elizabeth Hines there at USC. And, when I saw her video, it really just was one of those things where I I had to stop and start it again because mm-hmm. it was just too good to be true. First of all, when I saw her, uh, I just thought, wow, this girl looks... Um, well, she doesn't look like a boy, but <laughs> she's very tall and very lanky and thin and, you know, uh-huh. and sort of you know, her body language was that of a, was that of Carabino because that's what she was going to sing on the video. Right. And then, um, she started to sing and I remember very distinctly hearing the first two phrases and stopping the video. And I went straight into Zach's office and said, (laughs) stop what you're doing. I think we found our Carabino. Um, because we had toyed with the idea of giving this to a studio artist, uh, as right. many regional companies do. Uh, but there was something just very honest about Katie's portrayal, even through the camera. And uh, I remember later on that day, I showed it to the showed the video to Joe Spector and uh, our general director, and had him look at it. And of course, he got very excited and and said, "Well, let's see what she sounds like live." And um, and so when she came and auditioned for us live in New York, uh, my heart started pounding because I wanted it so <laughs> desperately for it to be as good uh, right. in person as it was on the video. And um, and I remember she started her audition with um, Una Voce Poco Fa, which was spectacular. It was beautifully 
beautifully sung and beautifully executed. But I was hoping, um, you know, I wanted her to get done with that so we could get <laughs> we could so, get right to the chase because I really wanted her as the Carabino so badly. Uh-huh. And I was so excited when um, when I called her back and and I asked her to to sing um, the aria, one of the arias for us, and she just delivered in spades. And it was sort of a no brainer. I mean, we had found our Carabino and we had found our studio mezzo, mm-hmm. and this is a young lady who she's just such a, a special gift um in that she works so hard and asks all the right questions and sings with so much heart and um and does all of her research and all of her homework and and when you have a young singer like that um it makes your job that much easier right because you know the energy is not put into the remedial tasks of, you know, having to pound notes or or to teach rhythms, but you get to make music with that person and you get to exchange ideas. And there's really very little for me to do when, when you have a singer like that. Uh, She just sort of goes there and it's been so wonderful to see her over the course of the season, but especially in this role, this was of course for her a dream role as well as it is for a lot of young lyric mezzo sopranos. And she just has gone into this with, with such energy and enthusiasm from day one. And it's been great to see how both our director, Tara Faircloth and our conductor, Dean Williamson have responded to, uh, to the three principal, uh, young artists who are singing these principal roles. Um, they've all done a great job and, uh, I'm, I'm proud of all of them, but, uh, especially with these three, because it's, it's a, it's a huge undertaking, right? It's a huge undertaking for all three, for all of them, but especially for these three. There's nothing better than when a truly remarkable cast comes together to perform an operatic masterpiece. I hope you'll join us for our upcoming performances of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. We'll be performing in Phoenix on Friday and Saturday, April 5th and 6th at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday, April 7th at 2 p.m. We'll be in Tucson the following weekend, April 13th and 14th, 7.30 and 2 p.m. respectively. Arizona Opera's production of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro is made possible with support from Eunice and Carl Feinberg, Nancy Foster, Gloria and Edward J. Koval, Catherine G. Havas, and Robert S. and Shoshana B. Tanser. More information is available at azopera.org. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen. It's the best way to be notified when a new episode is available. Be sure to join us in just a couple of weeks ahead of the Marion Roos Pullen Arizona Opera Studio performance of Cosi Fantutte. We'll have some more insights into the opera itself and hear from the Marion Roos Pullen Arizona Opera Studio artists. Until then... I'm Kyle Homewood. Thanks for listening to the Arizona Opera Podcast.